AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for November 6, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, we're joined by, on the phone, uh, one of our premier malware analysts, Jim Clausing. How's it going today, Jim? <laughs> Not too bad. Also in the studio here with me is uh, one of our other malware analysts and incident handlers, Matt Kaiser. How's it going, Matt? Any exciting things happen this past week? Tons of exciting things. In fact, we had to cut down some of the stories for this week. We had so many. So um, there's more out there. Trust me. I just, just Google for it. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, maybe we'll cover some other ones that we didn't get to this week, next week. But I, there are a couple of good stories here. So uh, first, uh, first one on the docket here is uh, there's some activity with malware and uh, uh, the iPhones and, and Macintosh, I guess. Can you tell me a little bit more about that one? Sure, so uh, Palo Alto released a report talking about a, a type of malware that they've seen affecting OS X machines and also iOS. They're calling it WireLurker. Now, uh, it seems to be sourced mostly from a third-party app store for Macs that's resident in China. This malware is kind of notable in that once the OS X machine is infected, it has the capability of infecting iOS devices as well over a USB connection. Okay. Uh, the techniques they use are not necessarily new, but actually kind of interesting and novel. They're actually able to push software to these machines without having to jailbreak them. Uh, and I think the technique that they're using has something to do with enterprise configuration. Most iPhones these days have the ability to push like a, an enterprise configuration profile to them, mm -hmm. which allows companies to push you know, apps that aren't on the App Store to these phones directly. Now, it seems that they're able to push this configuration profile, and once that's established, push more software to it as well. If the device happens to be a jailbroken, the malware actually do even more um, and trojanize certain apps that are on the phone already. Uh, the details are in the, uh, in the article itself. It seemed there was about I want to say somewhere in the range of like 500-ish different OSX applications on this third-party app store that were Trojanized, which is a pretty large amount, uh, and somewhere around 350,000 victims, potential victims. That was the number of downloads of those applications altogether. So it's a pretty large campaign. Um, from what I've heard, the, the, those apps and the whole infrastructure has already been shut down, but this sort of demonstrates the possibility of these sorts of attacks where you have not only uh, malware infecting the PC, not PC, I'm sorry, the Mac. I'm so used to saying PC, you know what I mean? A and from there, the devices, the, the phones as well. Right, so you need to have an infected computer first, a, a Macintosh with one of these Trojanized OSX applications. Mm -hmm. And then when you plug your phone in right. to your Macintosh, it's gonna transfer itself down, even jailbroken or not. Right, and it, it behaves slightly differently be but depending on if it's jailbroken or not. Um, but yeah, the, the one thing that I, I think I'm, I'm sort of on the edge, I'm not really sure if the phone has never been plugged in before, I'm not sure if it's possible because I think the first time you ever pair a phone to an OSX machine, it actually asks for your permission to send data back and forth. So if yeah, this is the first the time that phone's ever been plugged well, in. Right. It'll pop up and say, hey, do you trust this computer that you just plugged into? And you have to say yes, basically. But, you know. That's a pretty easy thing to social engineer people around, probably, because most people aren't even, they're, you know, they're taking the physical action to plug into their trusted 
trusted mm. Macintosh of theirs is saying, oh yeah, I wanna, you know, they're gonna click okay usually, I would think. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, you know, we talk about malware on mobile devices. I think you can probably count the number of malware, true malware that affects like an iPhone on probably one hand, mm -hmm. and l unless you're talking about jailbroken stuff. Even then, I think it's still a pretty low number in terms of how much is out there. Um, but this whole going over the USB, it's two different operating systems really in a way that they're, they're you know, crossing over between the two. I'm kind of surprised that they haven't tried to target Windows machines because you think that there's probably still a lot of Windows machines out there that you could Trojanize and still, you know, they're gonna plug in their phone. That, uh, as well. That is one point. of the more interesting aspects of it too, that not only is it a, a dual, dual platform attack, it's specific to, to the, the Apple ecosystem. Now some, right. some people are speculating that this is because someone has an interest in identifying the owners of these devices that are using pirated software. It's possible because the, the malware goes, you know, the one thing that it definitely can do in all cases is to grab the, the information of the owner of the device. A lot of stuff you can just sort of get by enumerating the device's properties when you plug it in. Right, right. So that, that may be the reason for it. Uh, it's not really clear. The top titles that were downloaded, that were Trojaned on that one app store, they all seem to be like AAA level games, like very big releases that people would normally pay around $60 for retail. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. So there, there may be some motivation there to, to try to identify pirates. Right. But again, pirates, speculation. Pirating game software, right? Yep. We've seen something similar, you know, with Windows machines infecting Android devices when you plugged them in before. But this is, this is a new one for the iOS devices. And you're right, other than, you know, other than some Java malware that runs on all kinds of machines, you know, we haven't seen uh, very many that attacked iOS prior to this. Yeah, it's interesting. And the other thing I was just thinking about is uh, nowadays, I find myself, I have an iPhone, uh, so if you want to try to target me. But um, the one thing I've noticed is it's very rare for me now to ever need to plug in. You used to have to plug into your, you know, via USB to update the iOS on there. Almost all that's done over the cloud now, even backing up and all of that stuff is done uh, over the cloud with your iPhone. Uh, so, you know, certainly there are certain population. I'm not saying I've never, you know, I have probably though in within the past six months, I probably plugged my phone into my machine once, you know what I mean? So it's not as frequent as it used to be. And uh, so that might hinder some of this from actually working too well, uh, unless you get a certain population of people that do plug in their devices more often. I, I think that this population of users is using that third party app store to install both Mac software and potentially iOS software, which would give you a reason to plug your phone in if it's not jailbroken. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. Okay, interesting, good one. I guess we'll have to keep an eye on this one and see how things uh, progress with it. You know, it's one of those things I would worry about. Traditionally, Apple's been pretty good. Like you said, they seem to have taken some action to uh, have this taken down, so it's not, um, uh, it's not as uh, prevalent, but um, in any event, they're pretty good about keeping on top of that type of stuff, especially when rogue stuff gets into their store, which doesn't seem to have happened in this case, right? It was a third-party store where third most of the apps one. were. I think one thing that I would recommend as a, a fix for, the, for, for Apple, actually, and a couple of people have mentioned this as well online, is that the ability to push these sorts of enterprise configurations to non-enterprise phones, like personal phones, it ought to be not something that's not easy to do. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're going to be, you know, using some sort of mobile device management or something like that where it makes sense, you know, you're using these in the, in the company, maybe there should be an extra step involved so it's not as easy for software to just 
make those changes automatically over a USB port. Right, right. Okay. Oh, it's uh, duly noted. So hopefully someone's listening out there. Um, so uh, next story we've got is, uh, I think you, you were looking into this one, right, Jim? Uh, basically the MD5 collision issue and how MD5s, you know, probably needs to be moved on and uh, not use that anymore. <laughs> yeah, MD5 is something we should have moved on from quite a while ago. Um, it's been several years now since the MD5 attacks became, you know, uh, reasonably, you know, in terms of computation and money for for nation states. Well, the, this uh, this article in Ars Technica points out that uh, they're now dirt cheap. This particular attack was done on a GPU instance in Amazon's EC2 cloud infrastructure and only cost him 65 cents worth of computing time. It took 10 hours, but only cost 65 cents worth of computing time to generate an arbitrary MD5 collision. So using MD5, uh, we've been saying for a long time, should move on from that. SHA-1, uh, we talked about several months ago that, you know, that the SHA-1 attacks were now in the same ballpark. So this was just a, another reminder that we really need to be moving on to you know, SHA-2, SHA-3, if they ever finalize the, the, the details on that, the, the implementations. Um, yeah, MD5 is for you know de for determining you know uniqueness and for signature type purposes it, md5's day is long since past and this was just you know i saw this and saw the cost is now you know anybody can do it if it only costs 65 cents anybody can do it now they can generate documents that collide they can uh, generate certificates, fake certificates, um, if MD5 is all you've got protecting it. So, so yeah, I just wanted to bring this up because of the, the cost and to remind folks it's time to be on SHA-2 or SHA-3. So just to like maybe uh, step back for a second, maybe to explain to the viewers here. So the basic gist is you might have a file or an SSL certificate or some type of uh, whatever it is. It could be anything, a binary, executable, whatever. MD5 process takes that file, looks at all the bytes in it, computes up this number, and that's what we call an MD5 checksum. So there are a lot of things that use that as a means to uh, validate that whatever this program or this SSL certificate is, is actually authentic, you know, uh, authentic, the real one. But what you're saying here is that MD5 is pretty cryptographically weak. It's not a very long signature uh, space, I guess, if, for lack of a better term. So with relatively low computing power nowadays, 67 cents it sounds like in 10 hours, I can make one file have the same MD5 checksum as another file. So I could make my bad certificate, SSL certificate, look like a real SSL certificate and deliver it to people and in their browser, it'll look like they're really going to whatever such such uh, website when in reality they're not. They're going to my fake SSL certificate. And right, this, this is exactly what the Flame uh, malware did 
a couple years ago, about two years ago, although it took some more computation two years ago to do it. But they essentially um, generated a counterfeit uh, Windows Update certificate since that was only protected by MD5, and they used that to infect, I, I believe it was machines in, in the Middle East they were targeting. It was in the realm of nation-state capabilities probably six or eight years ago. Well-financed criminals two or three years ago. Pretty much anybody can do it now. And I guess what I wonder, and this might be an interesting uh, question to ask, you know, what, what is that law where, you know, the, the rate of computing um, performance increases exponentially or something like that? So I wonder, like, how many years from now is it going to be before SHA-1 or some of these other stronger checksum algorithms are equally as easy to break, you know, because it seems like we've been really accelerating fast, especially in the cloud space where you can get a whole farm of machines stood up in an, you know, a heartbeat and then take them down again with all the virtual machine aspects of things going on nowadays. So, uh, yeah, it was Moore's law and SHA-1, SHA-1 is not too far behind. Uh, SHA-1 can be broken now by well-financed criminals. Uh, it, it probably can't be broken quite as cheaply yet as MD5, but it's it's not too far behind. SHA-2 and SHA-3, you know, are where you need to be right. to last, you know, even even another five years. Even though some of the big companies or you know some of the big browser uh, manufacturers are not removing support for SHA-1 SSL certs until. 2016, I think, but that was the story we did a, a month or two ago. This one just just reminds us that you're right. It's it's only a matter of time, and the, you know how good the encryption is is based on how much time it buys us, not that it will ever keep anything completely secure. Did you have something to add there, Matt? I was just going to say it is that that saying you can't hide secrets from the future. Right. You know that one? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, like you said, uh, stronger is better, even though it might take a little bit extra work computing wise to get a better, you know, like SHA-2 using it. It might take a few seconds longer to compute the checksum. Uh, it's probably worth moving in that direction. I know there's a lot of services out there that still use MD5 to determine the uniqueness of a file, and that's the, the file. Uh, even some of those are using SHA-1 as well, but um, maybe they need to start looking more in the future. Uh, towards SHA-2 or SHA-3, like you said. Yeah, I mean, most of most of the like the malware repositories is where I see it a lot, but they all have gone to using MD5 and SHA-1 and SHA-256 are all available to you. So five, six, eight, ten years ago, we were only using MD5 to identify you know a particular malware sample. Yeah, now. We now I generate all three of those on every sample just so I can, you know, compare back to old ones as well as, you know, looking at new ones. Right. Good point. Good point. Um, okay. Uh, thanks for that one. So the next story we have is one that I was looking into, which I thought was a uh, interesting story. So the guys over at Trend Micro put out a. Um, I don't know if this is a blog posting or whatnot. I think it's their, yeah, it's their intelligence blog. 
about a new fishing technique uh, that they've been observing. And they've only observed it in one place, I think, somewhere in China, targeting a very specific service. But the basic gist of what the attackers were doing, so it's basically a new type of phishing. So we see phishing all the time, right? And what users typically do, or what attackers usually do, is they try to create a fake version of a well-known website like Facebook or uh, whatever, you know, any of these popular websites. They create a, their own version of it. They put it up on a website with all the images. Sometimes they don't even put the images there. They'll link over the images from the real site. But in any event, it's usually a static file that exists up on a website somewhere. They send some emails to people saying, hey, you've got a new Facebook friend or whatever. The person clicks on the email. They go to the rogue website and they get the phishing page that's you know, statically presented. A lot of times it's pretty easy to pick up that, hey, this is not really the right Facebook page or whatever targeted site that they're talking about. Um, but what they, uh, a new technique that they've been doing, which I'm kind of surprised it took them this long to figure this out, is they've implemented some proxying techniques in here. So what they're actually doing in the URL that they, they send in the email to you when you click on it, it's got a, uh, a base64 encoded URL in there and when you visit the actual rogue website you're not getting static content back you're actually hitting a proxy probably PHP code or some some process that's running and what that'll do is it'll actually go fetch the real page that you want to get to from the real website and present it all back to you so even if the, uh, the target organization that they're targeting changes the look and feel of their website or does something to try to prevent it, it makes it a lot more difficult to pick up on that uh, because it's actually proxying all of that activity all the way through. Um, so, and they, they, uh, they have some examples of how they do that there in this article. Uh, they're calling it uh, Operation Hu Yao. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, which is Chinese for monstrous fox. I don't know why exactly they picked that name. They might mention it here in the article. But uh, it's an interesting new technique, something to be aware of. You might not, it's probably pretty hard to pick up on unless you can kind of see the activity occurring or maybe find one of these compromised websites that are being used as a phishing go-between point that's running this proxy. Um, but it's one of those things that if it becomes more prolific, it's probably going to be a little bit of a problematic thing because right now phishing is pretty easy to pick up on. This might make it a little bit more difficult, not impossible. Um, still, you're going to be going to a, a rogue place that doesn't look right, uh, but the content you're getting back is going to look a lot more authentic. And um, uh, so that might fool some people into thinking it's real. Now, they're not doing anything to proxy like an SSL connection here, right? They're not man in the middle wing? As far as I understand, it doesn't look like they're proxying the SSL connection. To, to what it looked like here is it's just, you know, there's these scripts. I don't know if they're repurposed some scripts, but I'm kind of imagining or reading between the lines, let's say, that maybe you're familiar with PHP proxy. There's this scripting, it's a PHP script that you can put on your web server and it actually acts as a proxy server where you can go to it and proxy and get to other places. Uh, it sounds similar to that kind of thing um, that they might be doing or repurposing some of that type of code to, to proxy. Uh, and the other thing is they can do multiple sites. So if they just compromise one place, they can have kind of a single URL that has this base64 encoded thing that could be, you know, just have to change that out and you're fishing for a new website uh, because it's all going to the same place and um, then the proxy receives the request, decodes the base64 chunk, says, oh, they really want to go to such and such real website, 
uh, index.html or whatever, and then it goes and fetches that and returns you know, to the user the You know, that's, page. It's, it's interesting. I've seen this kind of technique used before. Um, one place that most people will probably recognize it, and, and I think this is how they're doing it, is Google Translate where basically you're requesting a website, they're going out and fetching it on your behalf and returning it to you with modifications. Now in this case, the modifications are that they're going to be actually collecting the data that passes between you and that site, but you're basically interacting with a site with an intermediary. Right, right. And I've also seen it, I think there was at least one um, anti-censorship proxy that um, Chinese activists were using, where you would, you know, you would pass, you'd go to this URL and you would pass it a parameter that was just the backwards base64 encoded version of the same URL you, of the URL you intended to go to and it would fetch it for you and return it to you through that other site so never did you actually make a connection to that site it was the proxy that would retrieve it and, and render it to you right right yeah interesting you know as a kind of non sequitur thing that just kind of popped into my head probably a good thing for people to do because we talk we don't really talk about proxying very much uh, but I've seen other malware out there not this one but other ones that will um, change your settings in your browser to proxy you to a place. And then what they do is you're, all your traffic's going through a proxy uh, from your browser, and they're going to just watch and intercept it and record all your logins and passwords for you know, unencrypted connections. And uh, it's probably a good idea every once in a while to go check <laughs> to see if, you're, if you've got a proxy set in your browser, because uh, I know we've seen that with certain malware samples. Well, they'll go do that as part of their process of taking over a machine. Uh, which would be a good tip-off that you got a problem. Um, unless you're in a corporate environment and it's a legitimate proxy for your company or business, but at home, that's probably, uh, that's probably unusual depending on your circ circumstances. So. All right. Um, so the, uh, the fourth story we have is back to Matt again and a little interesting article about data leakage and these breach, you know, all these data breaches and types of data that people are um, posting out on the internet. Right, so the, the thrust of the article, this is a, a Krebs um, security article, great news source. This article is about fake data leaks and how you can determine which ones are real and which ones are fake. Now, um, large data leaks uh, have been sort of like a badge of honor for hackers for a while. They could, you know, post it up the pastebin and say, hey, look at all this stuff that I found. I'm the best. Look at all these passwords we cracked. We are the best. Um, but sometimes you'll get groups that will just generate data or find other data from somewhere else, re, you know, repackage it and say, we stole this from X site, and it hasn't actually come from there. They're really just trying to get a little bit of a spotlight because a lot of news organizations will say, oh, wow, look, we found this, this, this leak here. This is real news, and they'll, they'll go ahead and publish about it and you know, provide that sort of attention that someone's looking for without actually validating that it's a real hack. Now, Allison Nixon from Deloitte put together a paper explaining several techniques for determining whether the contents of a leak are legitimate or not. To be fair, this will say whether or not the site, whether this, this leak is actually correct, not whether or not the site was actually hacked. So all you can prove is that the data is real or not. Right. But they're kind of interesting. A couple techniques are um, using the site itself to validate whether or not the accounts actually exist on the site. So the first thing that's recommended is you create some accounts on the site yourself. You create one with you know, email address A, you create another one with email address B, then you try and set one's email address to the other ones. If it's allowed, that means that the site allows duplicate email address registrants, which right. sort of stymies some of the techniques you can use, but if one says you can't do that, this user already exists, you now have the ability to test whether or not a user exists in the system. Then you can go through the list of those other compromised accounts and say, are any of these actually in the system? 
And so you can say fairly quickly if there are a whole bunch of fake accounts on the site because you know they would have to exist in the database in order for them to be stolen from the database. Right, and that's a really important point, I think, what you said there because that technique is the legal way to do it, right? Because mm -hmm. what a lot of people probably would do is, oh, I got this dump of information of login IDs and passwords, I'm just gonna try to log into the website with the login ID and password. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. No. <laughs> That's not legal to do. Right. But what you're saying is as a, you know, uh, as a journalist and you're trying to validate whether this is legitimate data or not, mm -hmm. this is a legal way that you can say, okay, this account has already been registered on the system and you can kind of go through a process to validate that the data that you're, you know, is this data breach bundle that's been released to the internet whether those accounts are already registered on the site, which would give you some confidence that, hey, maybe this is yep. kind of real data here or not. So there are a bunch of really interesting techniques in this, in this paper. Some of the more interesting ones that I like are using statistical analysis. For example, um, taking a look at all, if, if the, the names are of a certain format, you know, maybe they're all of the same format, but you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't expect that from the site. You know, maybe someone's just generating names that are like firstname.lastname at randomsite.com. Right. The interesting one is if they're using, you know, names, actual person's names in the format of those name of the accounts, what you can do is take a, a sampling of, you know, what are all the first names. And if they look to be like a flat distribution, like you've got an equal number of Gary as you have, you know, Seamus as you have John, as you have, you know, some are very popular names, some are not very popular names. If they are, the distribution is flat, more likely than not, those are randomly generated. You know, the, the, the prevalence right. of certain names within a population, you should see, you know, has a particular function. But if, they're, if it's flat, it, it's more likely to be random. Right. Unless um, you had a real smart algorithm that knew what the prevalence of Gary is versus John versus, and then tried to distribute them properly, right? Mm -hmm. Which exactly. would be unlikely for a computer to do. I mean, somebody could write something that does that. But probably not, they're not going to go through that effort. So that's right. a good, another good tip. Okay. And another cool one is taking a look at the passwords. Uh, the first thing is to look at is the, um, the length of the passwords. If the attackers claim to have broken the MD5 hashes for all these passwords and they're long and they're more random than not or they're very strong passwords, the chances are less likely that these have actually been reversed from MD5s. That maybe someone has just generated these. Uh, if the passwords all look roughly the same or have been generated with the same algorithm, same thing. You know, maybe they're more, maybe they're really just randomly generated. Right, right. But also, if you happen to know the site's password policy, if they require, you know, an ex, you know, a certain number of numbers, certain number of special characters, and those passwords don't match up with what you what is required of the site, again, that's more likely that you've got, you know, a fake breach on your hands. Right, right. Now that's a, that's another good tip, right? So being able to find that pass, well, that's pretty easy. If it's a site you can register for, you can see what their policy is. They require, you know, at least one uppercase and. You know, it's got to be at least 12 characters and have, you know, at least a number and a special character or something. And then all this stuff in your data breach bundle here doesn't have that, then that would be a good tip off that this is probably not legit data. Um, I think I saw in that article as well, one of the simplest things that you should do, and most people don't do, is just take some of the data and try, you know, like a username, password, sometimes they'll be colon separated or whatever. You take that, stick it in, wrap it in quotes, throw it into Google and see if anybody else has posted that already from like four years ago, mm -hmm. which would be a good indicator that probably this is not really from the target that they're saying it's from, you know, the victim organization. They probably just scooped up a bunch of uh, data breach bundles from various websites or, you know, over the years, put them all together and then are pretending mm -hmm. 
to get, you know, because the thing we've been seeing lately is, oh, my God, a million passwords stolen. And then you see the next two weeks, 10 million passwords. And then 20, everybody keeps trying to one-up each other. But sometimes this one-upping is not real. They're just, um, they're just getting bogus data, putting it together, and trying to make a story out of nothing in reality. So something to be wary of. And I, you know, that's really the context of this article, it sounds like. So long story short, don't believe everything you read until, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, especially with the data breach stuff, because it seems like you should wait to hear from the source that the victim organization, whether this looks real or not, because uh, they'll, you know, usually more often than not, they're going to be upfront with you and say, yeah, you should change your passwords or we're going to force a password reset on everybody. And uh, I think in one of, they mentioned in the article, uh, one of the recent cases with, I think, Dropbox, there was a bunch of, uh, somebody had, you know, said that they collected a hundred million passwords or something from Dropbox or something like that. Um, and it wasn't real. It was one of these um, colo, you know, uh, collected, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, data breach bundles all smashed together and then somebody put it out there and it wasn't real. It wasn't even related to Dropbox. Yep. Some, sometimes you'll see that some of them may actually work if you happen to be one of those black hat guys that goes and tests those passwords. But we know that a lot of people actually will reuse usernames and passwords right. across multiple sites. So maybe these do work on that one site, but that's not the actual source of the breach. Right. Maybe someone has done that correlation and, and tried all those passwords from other sites and said, okay, here's the ones that we've noticed have worked on this site as well. So the data may not be technically incorrect, but whether or not the site has actually been breached is a completely different question. Right, right, good point. Okay, interesting one, thanks for that. Uh, so let's uh, take a look at the internet weather for the past week or so here. And uh, it was kind of a slow, regular week. There wasn't really much big changes, uh, but we'll cover a few of the things here. I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at some of the smaller events. Um, that probably go unnoticed uh, more often than not. So I kind of pulled a few, a couple of these out just to kind of show you how we can see that there's some shenanigans going on and um, uh, it's probably worth being aware of, but um, they're usually very targeted, very isolated events. So the first one is uh, we saw some increased scanning on port 9100 TCP which is associated with uh, Xerox multifunction printer. There is a vulnerability for uh, the Xerox multifunction printer. Interestingly, we had a large spike right here, somewhere in the middle of uh, November uh, 3rd, so a few days ago. And it went from basically no scanning on this port up to about 35 million flows per hour of scanning. It was primarily from a single source in the Netherlands, although there were a couple of US sources in there also engaged, but at a much lower level. The other interesting thing I thought about this is there was exploit code released uh, on November 3rd for this particular vulnerability. So it's probably somebody said, hey, new exploit released for this. Let me go find out how many of these things are out there and just went around scanning the internet uh, to see how many there are and then probably would later back, you know, circle back for the ones that actually answered and try to uh, exploit them if possible. Um, so that's one. If you have your printer, and it's a Xerox one that's vulnerable to this exploit, uh, you can, it's, why, it's freely available on the internet to find out what this vulnerability is. Um, I recommend you go check it out. I don't know why you'd have your printer directly connected to the internet. That's probably not a good idea. Some people are probably doing that, but um, uh, something to be aware of. It is a remote exploit type thing, so you can actually basically get kind of root level access to the system too. That port is 
also used by other printers too. I mean, that's the HP Jet Direct port too. Although the oh, oh. HPs would not be vulnerable to the necessarily to the same exploit as as the Xerox printers, but so yeah, okay. lot, that's lots of printers use that port. Okay, that's a good point. I didn't. I overlooked that, but um, it could be some scanning mixed in there for HP Jet Direct cards too. Uh, trying to get into that as well. Um, but again, more printing type stuff. Maybe that's some port that they've all agreed on to use. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it is, but in any event. Um, the, uh, the next one is one, I don't think we've talked about cups before. Maybe at some point in the show we have. Cups is basically, uh, it's the Unix printing service. Basically, if you have a Linux machine or a server, you can run this cup server process, which basically allows your server to act as a print server. And uh, there, uh, there's an exploit that was released about a week ago. It's, there's a Metasploit module for this one as well that um, uh, exploits the Shellshock vulnerability. So we've talked about Shellshock in the past. Basically, in the back end, if something shells out to bash and has maybe a web server front end like Cups does, which is the target of this, um, you can send some uh, specially crafted headers or other things into the request that will get executed by bash. And uh, you can do, basically you get uh, root level access to this one as well, because I believe the process runs as root, although I might be not be 100% positive on that. Uh, a lot of variants of this, a lot of variants of CUPS. CUPS is available for BSD and Debian and all these other variants out there, so they all have their own versions. So you have to check to see which versions are vulnerable. Um, but again, uh, similar type of behavior here where you basically don't really have very much scanning at all. Um, and then, you know, within this kind of two-week time span here, we did see, you know, uh, levels of 15,000 to 25,000 scan flows per hour. Still a small event, but it spiked. Uh, very limited number of sources. This actually had more sources in general than the other one, more widely distributed, but it was only like maybe five or six different sources uh, looking for this. Do we happen to know... Uh <clears throat> how the vulnerability was found in the first place? Was this something that was internally developed or was it maybe somebody was caught using it on the internet originally? Because the two spikes are kind of interesting there. You see a smaller, maybe a tentative spike for scanning earlier and then eventually it, it comes out into the, the public domain and then you've got a huge spike roughly after that occurs. Right. Uh, I, you know, I didn't look close. I was going to actually put a screenshot of the exploit code in here, but I didn't. And at the beginning of it, they do kind of talk about... Um, uh, the origin of the vulnerability because it's a Metasploit module. So you can go to Metasploit and go get this, um, and, you know, put it into Metasploit. But I don't remember exactly how, what the origin was, who, who discovered it and when. So um, I would imagine it was obviously discovered some point after the Shellshock vulnerability, right? Because <laughs> that's what they're leveraging here. Uh, but, you know, we've talked about that. We're seeing all kinds of various uh, CGI-based uh, web server programs uh, get targeted more and more as people are discovering, you know, they're going around looking and finding different pieces of software that use Bash in the back end as a CGI. They're finding new things, you know, over time here, uh, even beyond the Shellshock vulnerability, because that's so easy to find. This was a trickier one, mm -hmm. right? You know, Heartbleed was really easy because you just hit the thing with a special packet and you're going to, it's either going to bleed to you or it's not. Whereas this, you got to hit the right URL and find maybe maybe the, whoever wrote this application only messed up in their programming in one particular module. You know, 
you've got to find that one and then leverage it just right in order to get this to, to trigger uh, the shell shock vulnerability. So, okay. So the next one we have, uh, increase in scanning, uh, scan sources specifically on 32764 TCP. We've talked about this before. Notably, we talked about it probably, I don't know, three or four months ago, and then we talked about it at the beginning of the year. This is what they call, I don't know, it's really not called the Seracon vulnerability, but if you're familiar that there was um, uh, certain models of Linksys, Cisco Linksys, and Netgear devices that had firmware that was built by a company called Sercom, S-E-R-C-O-M-M. That had a backdoor in it that if you spent a, sent a specially crafted packet on port 32764 TCP, you could get a remote shell back to your system. So uh, this was a big hoorah-rah back at the beginning of the year uh, when it was discovered. Sercom came out, said, here's a patch. Somebody reversed that patch and said, hey, you put another backdoor in. <laughs> Why'd you do this? I don't know if they've ever actually said why they did it, but uh, basically, they fixed their backdoor, but put a new backdoor in as in the process of patching, which is a little interesting. And I think it's mostly for uh, for handling their firmware update process themselves via a tool that they use to update the firmware from like a computer that can access the router and send a new firmware to it. But their methods are not very sound. They should have a better type of maybe sign their firmware and have some other you know, a uh, cryptographically strong method to prevent somebody from accessing the device. Is that for like in the field updates or is that supposedly they're using it like before they ship this thing out to do those updates? Because um, there's many better ways to do a firmware update when you still have physical access to the device. I think it's, I, I think it might be for um, like actual customers to update okay. as well. Because uh, I think it was called like FT tool or something it was like the firmware something tool to update the, the firmware on the device. They didn't have like a method on in their UI to update. You okay. had to do it from a computer pushing the firmware to the device. Mm. But uh, in any event, I'm not sure, uh, I'm sure, I'm not sure I like the whole backdoor situation that's going on, but in any event, it looks like people are still looking for it. Most of the sources are in Korea. There's some pockets of activity. I kind of covered a little bit of this here, but it does have that kind of typical cascade effect of you know a, a lot to a little bit less to a little bit less to a little bit less until it tails off and we had another uh, volley of it here over the past two days or so three days maybe of them scanning for this so you know if you have these types these are mostly home type routers DSL modems things like that if you have one that has this uh, uh, particular old version of firmware you should be able to upgrade it in some way and protect it. Um, I have to go look at the articles to see how you would do that uh, in the best way. And then um, looking at the top 10 most pro ports for the, uh, for the past week or so here, uh, no real huge changes. There's a lot of shifting of places here. Um, now this is the most, when we say most pro ports, this is the ports that are probed most often, but not necessarily by the most uh, a coordinated group of sources. And uh, what we see is uh, 135 TCP has jumped up to the top position. It's up five places from before. Uh, some of these other ones are um, pretty statically positioned. 1433 climbed up, although I think it was on the chart last week. Um, that's your um, uh, Microsoft SQL Server stuff going on there. 
22 TCP was static at, at position number three here. That's your SSH scanning, brute forcing, try to pass your guests their way in. Uh, 8088, either proxy, I think there's some Tomcat that runs on those, various web services that run on those various ports. Uh, we've actually seen shell shock scanning across uh, some of these high 8,000 port ranges as well. Uh, 23 TCP is Telnet. 445 TCP is your Windows file sharing. We see that all the time. That's down a few positions from before. The 9064 TCP has come down significantly. So it was in the uh, number two spot last week. Um, and it has come down uh, to the number nine spot. This again is that um, uh, proxy scanning. So somewhere out there, there's actually a decent number of proxies listing on port 9064 TCP. Not sure exactly why that is. Um, I'd like to find out actually. I haven't been able to find if there's a particular vendor. Like we know Squid, you know, likes to list it on port 3128. I'm not familiar with any particular vendor that runs on 9064 by default, but there are quite a few out there. So, uh, and then 80 TCP uh, to round it out. And I do have a picture here of the 9064 TCP scanning. So this goes back 60 days. You see, we really didn't have much of it up until uh, maybe the middle of uh, what is this September and started to climb. We had a pretty, you know pretty rapid climb up into you know, middle to late October. So we went from basically nothing up to 110,000 scan flows, or I'm sorry, 110 million scan flows per hour. Mostly is coming from China, which makes sense. They're often looking for proxies in China or user people in China are, so that they can kind of visit websites that might be blocked for whatever reason uh, when they're in China. There was a bit of a dip here, which I thought was interesting around uh, uh, October 30th, and it's since started to creep back up again. That might just be speculating, could be whoever's running the software stopped it for a period of time or reissued a new command or something to, to scan again. Uh, so um, uh, that's a good one to keep an eye out for. Uh, we've, we've captured a lot of samples of this in the honeypot. It's basically just scanning for various URLs to see what they do is um, they test a connection to a website, let's say baidu.com. So it'll actually hit you know, this machine on port 9064, they'll request like a proxy would to get the page from baidu.com. If they get the right page back, then they know, hey, this is a proxy. Uh, sometimes they'll also just try to fetch an image from someplace. And then when they get the image back, they probably just do a checksum on it, hearkening back to Jim's article, hopefully not an MD5 checksum, uh, although we're probably not gonna be able to fake that too easy anyway in that rapid amount of time. But then they use that and they say, okay, I've got the right checksum here on this image, it's definitely acting as a proxy. Uh, and then for the most sources probing, so this is the most coordinated scanning activity. This one rarely has a lot of fluctuation because you got to get a bunch of, bunch of source IPs acting in unison here. This is most representative botnets at work. So uh, in general, uh, what we have here in the number one spot, Telnet, we always see Telnet in there. That's again, similar to SSH, brute force password guessing type activity going on. This ICMP stuff is probably mostly innocuous backscatter type traffic. Uh, Windows file sharing. We took a look at this a while back. We saw that there is some actors out there doing some uh, Windows file sharing um, uh, scanning and trying to brute force password guess their way into the Windows file sharing, but not very aggressively. They'll try a few passwords to see like some real like admin password type things to see if they could connect to a network file share on a device. Um, and ADTCP, that's your web stuff. 27015, UDP is gaming. Uh, 8080 TCP, this is probably proxy or Tomcat scanning as well. 
and then this 5000 UDP, which we think is innocuous. I've still been trying to get a couple of samples of this because I'm not quite sure what to make of it. it. The fact that there's, it's in the, you know, the top 10 most scanned in terms of the number of sources doing that scanning makes me a little concerned. It could be peer-to-peer -peer traffic. I still, my gut is kind of telling me there's something, might be more to this story than we know. Uh, so I'd like to find out. But in general, not a lot of movement here in this one. And then uh, I did grab a quick screenshot of the Telnet scanning. Uh, you can see it's, it's still pretty active. We're getting, you know, 15,000, oh, I'm sorry, around 25,000 scan sources per hour. And again, that's kind of sampled down. Uh, we don't see, obviously, all the traffic on the internet uh, in terms of the scanning activity going on. Uh, but it's a good representative sample. But compared to, you know, back in the August timeframe, we were seeing probably two to three times as much, uh, up around 65, 70,000 scan sources. And, you know, there's all these types of embedded devices out there that run Telnet. Even your home routers, you got these uh, DVR security camera systems. Uh, I'm sure there's other things, probably even printers and whatnot that people just connect to the internet because it's a device they buy, they stick it on, they boop, they plug it in, and they don't know what port it's listening on, but lo and behold, a lot of these things are listening on Telnet. And uh, if you don't set a good password policy on there and or block it at your firewall, uh, you could be exposing it to the internet. And that's the show for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can also find ThreatTrack on the AT&T Tech Channel that's uh, att.com slash threat track. We're also available on YouTube and iTunes as an audio only. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle uh, Twitter is at att security. Uh, thanks, Jim and Matt, for joining me. I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.